Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, folks. Today's show is brought to you in part by Omaha Steaks. Make home your favorite new restaurant this winter with Omaha Steaks delivered straight to your door. Have you ever wondered what makes Omaha Steaks so good? I think about this all the time. Well, here's the answer for you. It's the aging process. Omaha steaks are aged at least 21 days. That's where the magic happens. Try these mouth-watering steaks in the Butcher's Best Sellers package. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the promo code VOICES into the search bar to save over 50% and secure exclusive pricing just for you. Included in the Butcher's Best Sellers package are four iconic fork tender butcher's cut filet mignons, four ultra juicy burgers, four savory pork chops, four kielbasa sausages, four rich and decadent caramel apple tartlets, my favorite thing in the world, and so much more. In addition to getting more than 50% off, you also get four more chicken breasts and four more of those delicious burgers for free. All you have to do is visit omahasteaks.com, type voices in the search bar to order the Butcher's Best Sellers package today. Save over 50% plus get four free chicken breasts and four burgers, all from the company that's been bringing people together for over 100 years. That's omahasteaks.com, type voices in the search bar. And now let the cartoons begin. Recorded live in the USA and covering the whole wide world. Right on! This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, March 17, 2021, St. Patrick's Day. And this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. My guest today is author, filmmaker, and publisher, Greg Mitchell. We last spoke to Greg back in August about his book, The Beginning or the End, And this week, Greg returns to the show to discuss his latest must-see documentary called Atomic Cover-Up, based on his book of the same name, premiering March 20th through the 30th in the Cinequest Film Festival. Meanwhile, Greg weighed in on the movie Mank with an editorial in the New York Times, and he's also busy publishing a daily newsletter called Between Rock and a Hard Place, gregmitchell.substack.com. Links in the description. Meantime, if you like what you hear today, don't forget to sign up for our bonus content at bobseskashow.com. All right, let's catch up with Greg Mitchell. You have been busy as hell since the last time you were on the show. And 
I, I thought I was the busiest guy doing this kind of crap, but man, <laughs> you are like a thousand times busier than I am. You directed and produced a documentary based on your book, Atomic Cover-Up. You published an article in the New York Times about the Oscar-nominated film Mank. You started your own Substack newsletter, which is completely comprehensive. I can't wait to talk about that. In fact, I want to talk about all of those things, but let's start with the movie first. I just... Oh, my God. I just watched maybe the first half hour, 35 minutes of it. It's about 52 minutes long. Um, it's about the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. Uh, similar topics to what we were discussing last time you were on. Um, when will the general public be able to see this movie? I think it's so important. The sooner, the better. Well, uh, actually, they can see it anytime mm-hmm. between March 20 and March 30. Yeah. Uh, thanks to the wonders of the new film festival virtual setups, of wow. which they have been forced to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, my film was selected for the uh, the major Cinequest film festival, yeah. and um, as with other festivals, they they're not doing in theater uh, productions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so normally it would be, I'd say, well, my film is in this festival, and people are going to attend in person and. Um, you know, maybe some reviews, and then eventually it'll be available to the public if, if a distributor picks it up or yeah. it's streamed on TV. But it's completely different uh, because now they are shown or they're they're put up online mm-hmm. at the festival. You do have to pay. In my case, it's a three ninety nine for mm-hmm. a ticket, and you can view it at your leisure. You know, you kind of buy your ticket and then you can watch it anytime you want yeah. between March twenty and March thirty. And uh, so if anyone's interested, they can go to the Cinequest, C-I-N-E-Q-U-E-S-T site. And um, so it is actually, you could say that it's totally open to the public uh, across the whole country. Yeah, and I'll put links in the description for everything we're talking about today. So I'll make sure everyone has a a, a direct URL path to uh, everything we discuss. But um, I'm curious to ask you this in terms of the virtual nature of the film festival. This is sort of a departure from a discussion of the film, but I've been curious about this for the past year or so. Do you feel as if Atomic Cover-Up is going to be better served by an online streaming audience versus a theatrical audience? Or would you rather see it shown in a theater? Well, uh, of course, we we all, whether we write books or uh, do anything, um, like to appear on stage and, you know, be interviewed uh, after a reading or after a showing or something. And, you know, there's certainly something wonderful about, you know, your your movie opening or a crowd and everything else. But, you know, the crowds are often small. And uh, the, um, you know, the ability to have so many people see it. And, of course, you know, the film has now been entered. We haven't heard from a number of other festivals. It could be accepted in, you know, a large number or virtually none. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of them later in the spring will have, uh, if we're lucky, um, you know, live screenings. Uh, But I think your other question was, you know, how how people would react to this film and other films watching it on their, uh, watching it online or uh, hopefully more on a laptop than a phone. But, uh, I think my film is, uh, I mean, it's very intimate and it's very, I, I don't think, I think in some ways it's, it's probably better to be able to watch it up close and mm-hmm. maybe, maybe even take a pause now and then. Um, um, where, you know, other, some films of course are kind of made for the widescreen and, yep. you know, big vista, big, big vistas and all that kind of thing. So, 
Uh, I think my my film is particularly well suited to a smaller to a smaller screen for sure. Yeah, and plus I think the audience virtually might actually end up being larger than the audience that would have appeared in a local theater. You know what I mean? Like, oh, absolutely. Oh, no question about that. That's, yeah. I mean that's a that's a slam dunk. I mean, you know, like I said, it's always a big deal. You can say you've been in a festival mm-hmm. and screening and everything, but you know. Crowds are not always that that large if if it's not a major film. That's right. Uh, and my film is a, you know, we can talk about it. But my film is yeah. a, you know, it's challenging for a lot of people. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. I, I give them credit for accepting it and uh, making a big deal about it and you know and screening it um, because it's it takes <laughs> I don't want to say takes some courage, but yeah. it's uh, you know a lot of people. It's a subject that's very difficult for a lot of people and. Uh, I think um, you know. I think it's. I think it's great that they. You know, they're going for it, and I think others will too. But I, it, it's a. It's a. I think it's. A, you know, it's a tough film to market. Uh, yeah. But um, I think as a, and no, and notice that 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 will happen. The movie, okay. uh, the film, all centers around this newsreel footage of the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that was taken by both. I think there was a Japanese news crew on the ground, and then there was also an American news crew on the ground later on. But all of this footage was hidden from both the Japanese and American public for years. The answer to my first question is uh, pretty obvious, I think. But why was it concealed for so long, Greg? Well, it was, uh, you know, uh, I've, I've written three books on the subject, so this is a subject I've been involved with for almost 40 years mm-hmm. in a large way. Um, and, you know, it's simply that the, you know, when the war ended, the official narrative from the government and from the media was, uh, you know, only these two bombs ended the war. They were the only things that could have ended the war. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even they were called a blessing from God and things like that. Um, so the none of the, no one uh, no one wanted that, that to be challenged, and and in fact, as as, I, as I'm sure you know, um, it still is not largely challenged. Uh, mm-hmm. Even last year, when we last talked at the 75th anniversary, the media coverage was overwhelmingly well. You know, it's it's too too bad a lot of people died, but you know it had to be done, and it was basically the right decision and a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so. Defending that has been important, and what's you know what this footage showed, and you know as you mentioned, first shot by a Jap- an elite Japanese newsreel team immediately after the bombings in the first days and, and weeks, and then by a U.S. military crew that came in a few uh, months later yeah. and shot the only color footage, thousands of feet of color footage, uh, and that was all suppressed for decades. Wow. And um, you know one reason was certainly that. Uh, all of it focused, not exclusively, but had a, a large focus on the survivors, on the victims, mm-hmm. um, on the people who had suffered, not on buildings. You know, the American public for decades was only allowed to see, you know, uh, leveled buildings and rubble and uh, landscapes. Um, but these focused on individual people. And, and the problem, of course, not only is Americans, Americans were their perpetrators, but the overwhelming number of of the dead and the survivors were civilians, women and children, mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, overwhelmingly. I mean, in Nagasaki, for example, it was about 98%. Uh, in, in Hiroshima, it was about 75%. Uh, 
Why, so what, these, just out of, out of curiosity, why was that? Why was it such a high percentage of women and children? Were the men off fighting the war? Is that why? They were just uh, women and children remaining behind mm-hmm. in the cities? Well, in Hiroshima, um, it was, the bomb was dropped over the center of the city yeah. as planned. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the goal was to kill as many as possible and, and show the effects of the bomb. Mm-hmm. So it was not targeted on a military base. It was not targeted... A, Anyway, away from the city. So, you know, um, I mean, you're right. The majority of people in the city, which was completely destroyed, mm-hmm. were, you know, women and children and the elderly. Yeah. Um, and so and there was a military base sort of off to the side in Hiroshima, and they took 10,000 casualties associated with that. Um, so uh, but that was not the target. The yeah. target was the center of the city. Nagasaki was also the target was the center of the city. Uh, the bomb did land a mile or two off target. But but it landed directly over the center of the Catholic community in the Far East. Wow. Uh, so there were about ten thousand Catholics who died in the uh, this sort of uh, I don't say a suburb of Nagasaki, um, and there was virtually no military in Nagasaki. So you know the estimates are that maybe two hundred to three hundred uh, military uh, people died in that bombing, and uh, you know eighty thousand civilians. You mentioned the religious community in the center of the city uh, that took on so many casualties. One of the most haunting things in the documentary is right toward the beginning where they talk about the singing in the aftermath of the bombing. And they were singing, at least from what I could hear, uh, what I could tell from the the film, they were singing Silent Night, weren't they? Right, yeah. Well, this was... uh... The largest cathedral in the Far East was in Urakami, which was yeah. this section of Nagasaki, fa- fantastic, massive cathedral, which was completely uh, destroyed. The bomb went off almost overhead. And like mm-hmm. I said, this was the Catholic community. So the, the film pretty much opens with uh, the leader of the American military team, uh, army officer, with his crew, uh, hearing uh, people, you know, wondering what is going on in this yeah. desolate landscape. We hear singing, and so they go up the hill with their cameras, and they come upon, in the ruins of the cathedral, uh, there are uh, parishioners, uh, Japanese Catholics, uh, at the holidays at the end of 1945, singing Silent Night, wow. um, and so that's captured on camera, and, um, and then the film moves on, but. Um, you know that was uh you know that was the reality and and i mean what's amazing is that in my film because so much of this footage was suppressed for for decades there are a lot of images like that that people have never seen yeah. i mean there are some some images in the film that people may recognize from having seen that've been used used in other uh, other films in the last few years but uh you know the bulk of the footage has never been aired before it's just been sitting at the national archives and Mm -hmm. like i said people are not necessarily interested in showing it um and of course for many decades it was not even uh you know it was not even available to be shown describe some of the effects on the people who survived those two blasts uh it seems to me as if looking at some of this footage i'm looking at the injuries sustained by these people and i'm going Man, they must have been wishing for death. I can think of no yeah. other uh, thought process that may have been going through their heads. It's it's described in the film that it looks like their souls have been ripped out of them, that there's no more humanity really left inside them, staring off into space, shell-shocked by the entire uh, nightmare of it. What what were yeah. some of the, the effects of the physical effects on those people due to the uh, atomic bomb? 
Well, of course, uh, they, they varied. Right? Of course, one we can't witness because the people were vaporized, mm-hmm. uh, totally disappeared. Uh, others were burned up on the spot from the bomb. Others were burned up in the you know the, the fires that swept the entire city. Yeah. Uh, uh, but in the in in my film and in the aftermath of the bombing, of course, most of the survivors were people who were severely burned and uh, formed hideous scars, et cetera, et cetera, which which we don't try to show too much in the film. I think the film people may feel is fairly subtle, yeah. uh, pretty artful, uh, you know, more haunting than you know than graphic. Yeah. Uh, but we do show some of that, and of course. Um, and of course, many others were affected by radiation disease, which seemed maybe at the start not so bad. You know, you're uh, sick, yeah. uh, but then of course it develops. Uh, your hair falls out, and you get sicker and sicker, and you die. Um, yeah. And uh, that was something new in the world. And that that's in, in a way that's the the counter to people. You know, people often say, "Well, okay, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were bad, but we also firebombed Tokyo, and you yeah. know." Tens of thousands died throughout Japan from firebombing. So how was this any worse? And of course, the answer is there are several answers to it. But yes. one of them, of course, is the new element of radiation mm-hmm. disease, a particularly awful way to die. Uh, uh, you know, is, is certainly one answer. Is a, a hideous uh, yeah. uh, way to to die, and and effects they had, and the the fears of uh, passing it on, passing genetic effects on to uh, generations, yeah. which is not, you know, in a firebombing, nobody worries about that. So uh, the possible genetic effects, the radiation disease, um, you know, were just two of the things uh, that uh, make it so different. And in fact, I kept thinking about the uh, the film crews, the newsreel crews, both the, the Japanese yeah. crew and the American crew who were walking that ground, certainly being inundated yeah. with whatever remained of the radiation at that point in time. And I think the Japanese crew got the uh, the worst end of that deal. As soon as I'm thinking about this, it comes up in the documentary that one of the members of the Japanese newsreel crew considered the assignment a death sentence to have to go yeah. in and shoot this, knowing that there was this radiation at the point. And in fact, they didn't know initially that there was a, a, an issue with radiation and then it was discovered. And then from that point forward, well, they've got to deal with that too. And uh, knowing because of uh, some of the other victims of the radiation, the film crew goes in and, yeah. and thinks, oh my God, well, this is it for me because now I'm going to get hit with this radiation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, radiation was, we, we, we think it's kind of old hat now, but yeah. it was a totally new phenomenon at the time. And certainly, the people went in there. Even the American, when the Americans went in, they were, you know, I quote the uh, the head of the American team, just saying, "We are given radiation badges," and you know, they didn't even look at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and there were a number of the of the Americans who went in who then suffered um, possibly linked, you know, cancers uh, afterwards. Um, so, yeah, it's it, the filmmakers uh, on all sides were incredibly brave. They went in and you know, were going to do their job, and yeah. uh, and it was awful. Yeah, I mean, it was awful to experience, awful, awful to have to experience what they saw. Yeah. Uh, but then to take that on, take take that risk of shooting it, and then uh, you know the leaders on both sides. Then uh, you know the, the last half of the film is uh, really about the efforts to get this footage out. Mm-hmm. And so we see both the Japanese and the Americans trying desperately to get the U.S. to release the footage or um, 
so they can make films about it or get shown on TV or whatever. So a lot of it is, you know, the, the filmmakers are kind of heroic in the sense yeah. of, you know, shooting, shooting the footage and then trying for decades to get this footage uh, released. And it seems trivial given the uh, casualty count on the ground among the civilians um, to, to ask about the film crew. Uh, whatever happened to them? Did they succumb to the radiation, both the, the members of the Japanese crew and the American crew? Yeah. What happened to them physically? Did they uh, suffer any effects uh, from the radiation in the long run? Yeah, I mentioned that the, that the uh, percentage of the, the American crew uh, definitely did uh, mm -hmm. suffer from various cancers. Now, yeah. again, you can't link it. That's the problem. It's the same, the same thing with the, Ameri with the Japanese crew. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that they didn't just drop over dead after a few months. So. But uh, as in all these cases, uh, as well as, you know, I think one of the great um, un, uh, you know, unexplored stories, maybe it's the last, outside of my, my film, of course, the last untold story of World War II is is the American occupation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with mm. the hundreds hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Uh, yeah. I, I've never seen a full book or a, f a full film or anything on the America, you know, the U.S. Uh, military occupying those two atomic cities, and they, you know, they lived, slept in the ruins, and you know, were bunked nearby and patrolled the city and did all sorts of scientific tests, medical treatment, and everything else. And I've never seen um, any, you know, hardly anything on that. So I think my film maybe helps bring that to attention also, the fact that Americans, you know, were in there and uh, subjected to the, the same aftermath. Yeah, you know what? It's a, a fascinating point because we all see the newsreel footage of various atomic bomb tests and so on, and there are soldiers standing what yeah. seems like inside the blast radius. Like they're they're way too close to what's happening. Well, they're ordered in terms to march in. They're, they're not yeah. only close, but they're ordered to march. <laughs> okay, uh, wait forty minutes and then march under the mushroom cloud. I mean, was uh, the idea from the Pentagon and the military commanders was the idea that these guys are just expendable and we could just send them into an irradiated zone without uh, concern for their lives? I mean, was this just considered part of the, the duty of a soldier to do this, to be expendable like this? Or did they just not know? I mean, how could they justify sending soldiers into a zone that they knew would be deadly? And, and maybe this is a silly question to ask, but it just uh, it baffles me how they were allowed to do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, again, it comes back to why this footage was suppressed for mm -hmm. so long. Um, you know, they didn't want uh, Americans or people in the media or, or, or military people to see what the the full effects of the bomb were. I think there was a certain sense that, yes, we dropped these bombs and cities were leveled and people died, but they people were not shown the the images of, uh, of uh, victims suffering, you know, from their injuries. Or illness, um, and so you know, so that was that was, would have challenged the you know the the people the uh, people under their command in terms of who were so many were had to take part in these nuclear mm. tests, you know. And again, we you know we uh, you know there's a lot uh, been said about and written about you know the 1950s and duck and cover and yeah. everything else, which I certainly experienced um, as a kid. Um, but, you know, you sort of less attention to the fact we had hundreds of nuclear tests, many of them above ground and fallout in the atmosphere and everything else. So throughout the 1950s, just soldiers and, and local communities were just 
you know, affected by, you know, possible radiation and, uh, you know, just week after week. Oh, yeah. uh, so it's an incredible story. But again, it comes back to this is the exact period where this footage was, um, you know, was kept buried. And so I hope my film, um, which is called Atomic Cover-Up. I'm not sure we've actually yes. identified yes, it. Yes, we have. The film. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the... Um, yeah, that's really the root, uh, you know, the root of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, has there been an extensive study in terms of the long-term effects? And this is sort of a tangent, but uh, it's it's something that I always think about. I mean, it was, there was so much nuclear testing going on, late 40s and the 50s, 60s, I mean, all the way up into uh, the early 80s, I believe. And uh, by the time we got to the 80s, it was below ground and so on. But yeah. in terms of above ground tests, has there been any study to determine the overall impact uh, with the entire population of the world uh, from all of those tests? Because it seems like, well, that's a hell of a lot of radiation to be spewing into the environment. Yeah. And while, yeah, the atmosphere can kind of absorb some of that and disperse it, at the same time, it's got to be circulating around into, you know, specific to all of us, you know, American populations and creating cancer clusters. I just think of yeah. all of that radiation landing on people miles and miles away. Has there been a study in terms of that uh, and its effect on the uh, population? Yeah. Well, there have been numerous studies. It's really, really too much to go into, but there there have been numerous studies over the years uh, showing that. I, I don't mean, you know, kind of uh, uh, peacenik studies, but yeah. uh, official medical uh, uh studies and so forth, scientific studies. Uh, yes, and of course, they're, they've found many clusters near the nuclear sites. Uh, St. George, Utah is a famous one. Mm. Um, out in the far west, Nevada, Utah, that whole that whole uh, section of the country, numerous cancer clusters. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, a, a sort of an alarming uh, spike in, in uh, incidents of such things with, you know, soldiers who participated um, and then they and even broader studies about the effects of radiation in the uh, radioactive particles in the atmosphere drifting across the U.S. Mm -hmm. And there have been studies. I mean, I can't remember the numbers anymore, um, but um, huge numbers of Americans and American children who they they estimate over 20 years who got, for example, leukemia mm -hmm. from this stuff in the atmosphere. And I, I think it's you know it's hard to pin down, and you know it's certainly partly guesswork, but I don't think anyone challenges the fact that um, thousands and many tens of thousands of Americans were, and others around the world, um, were adversely affected by the uh, all this uh, junk in the atmosphere. Getting back to the movie, I, uh, I think I mentioned to you last time you were on, Greg, that I am both fascinated and terrified. I think I'm fascinated because I'm terrified uh, of nuclear weapons. I grew up in the 1980s, late 70s, 1980s, and and uh, did experience a little bit of that Cold War duck and cover era, just the sort of the tail end of it. But why should American audiences take a hard look at the impact, what these nuclear bombs actually did to human beings? Why should American audiences take this uh, kind of painful and haunting look at the victims of this technology? Yeah. Well, of course, uh, you know, the, the cliche is, well, there, there are victims in every civilians who die in every war, which mm. is true. Yeah. Uh, and the other, of course, is World War II was horrendous. And uh, how many tens of millions died? And, and, and then, of course, the Japanese were the aggressors and Pearl Harbor and so forth. Yeah. So all these things are true. But on the other hand, 
Americans don't like to and are not used to coming face to face with uh, uh, victims of their own what I would call war crimes. Um, you know, there's been dozens, if not hundreds, of, for example, Holocaust-related films. Uh, but of course, the Nazis were the perpetrators here. Yeah. Uh, there, um, we don't like to see. Um, you know, we don't like. Don't like. You know, there certainly were. You know, have been uh, films about Vietnam that you know where the Americans are behave badly and and so on and so forth. Um, but nevertheless, this is on a huge scale. You know, like a hundred thousand people in Hiroshima dying in in an instant. Um, you know, that's not uh, something we like to face. It's sort of yeah. like the massacre of Native Americans. We still don't want to face. Um, so, I mean, that's a difficult thing. But you know, it, the, maybe the larger question is is uh, even. Uh, given that, why why should anyone care about this film or this subject today? Um, you know, we can't change the past, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, my point is that, you know, A, uh, according to all experts, nuclear dangers are rising today. Um, in fact, the Bolton of Atomic Scientists puts it at the, the, uh, the worst uh, dangers uh, since the late 1940s, hmm. uh, which most Americans would be surprised to hear that probably. Yeah. Um, but second is um, America still has a first use policy or what some people call first strike or first use policy. And that means we retain the right for a president to order a nuclear attack, uh, to initiate a nuclear war, essentially, yep. to use nukes uh, in response to a conventional attack abroad, or even in in uh, response to what we perceive as a threat from you know that someone is about to declare war on us, or whether it's uh, you know Iran uh, right now, which is who, who do not have nuclear weapons, uh, or North Korea, which does. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but for us to go first, and and so when did this policy started? Well, it started in 1945 and has never changed through all the presidents. I mean, Obama considered a no-first-use pledge. Uh, people, were, of course, were freaking out under Trump because he seemed all too likely yeah, <laughs> Jesus. To, to do it. Uh, people maybe calmed down a little bit with Biden, but good old Joe still has his finger near the button and, uh, uh, and still has a first-use policy. Mm -hmm. And what the reason I have been involved with this issue so closely for almost 40 years is, uh, first of all, most Americans don't really realize this. Um, but second, um, you know, it's it's uh, the, the example of Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, encourages possible use. As long as the media and officials uh, continue to say, well, you know, it's it's too bad so many died, but we had to do it. Well, you know, you're basically making an exception. You know, you're sort of saying yeah. we don't believe in we don't believe in using nuclear weapons, and particularly against cities. You know, what a horrible thing. Mm -hmm. We would never consider dropping a bomb on cities and killing hundreds of thousands of people. But oh, but it was it was worth it twice. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jesus. And you know, you could say that was a unique a, a unique situation and mm. that Japan was bad and so on and so forth. But, you know, everything's a unique situation today. Yeah. And uh, so to me, what has driven me is, and it drives me crazy every uh, major anniversary, particularly when uh, when so much of the media, it's just overwhelmingly, well, you know, we had to do it and 
Uh, I hope we don't ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, but they lay the groundwork for it being used again. Oh, yeah. And uh, and so that's that's why I keep coming back. And I know I know most people well seventy five years ago and. You know, we can't do anything about it, and, you know, why do we keep coming back to this, and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, so I guess that's my answer. It's it's a, actually a very topical, extremely topical issue, yeah. uh, which could, uh, well, it still could end the world. You know, we're worrying about global warming down the down the road a few decades, but, uh, you know, the, the world could still pretty much end tomorrow if there's a nuclear exchange uh, yep. uh, with uh, hundreds of weapons. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, that's what drives me. That's what what drive drove the making of this film, and hopefully, it will have some effect. And my attitude about the Pacific Theater of the War changed considerably. Strangely enough, when I saw the animated Japanese movie called uh, Grave of the Fireflies, which I think there's a lot of overlap between your film and this animated film. It's a heartbreaking story of a little boy and his sister during the firebombings of Japan when we were dropping incendiary bombs on basically paper cities. Cities entirely where the structures are entirely made of uh, some form of paper, right? And so we're just burning them to the ground with these incendiary bombs and of course those also hit people as well and uh, burn those people alive why did the united states choose to engage in total war against civilians why was that choice made in this case well it was you know it was the same reason the atomic bombs were dropped it was right, right. allegedly to, allegedly to bring the war to a close uh, mm. faster and of course, this had been initiated in in Europe. And there's, uh, you know, Nicholson Baker has written a great book uh, not long ago called Human Smoke, which traces, uh, you know, week by week the buildup to World War II and the decision by particularly the Brits to uh, start burning German cities. Um, I mean, the Germans were bad enough, but uh, you know, if you read that history, you see that it really was the West that went whole hog on yep. uh, the city burning. Um, and, um, so that, you know, once that, uh, you know, once that taboo come, came down, you know, it was anything goes. And of course the Germans were the blitz of London and everything else. So, um, you know, by the time we got around to 1945, um, understandably, um, Americans and others wanted the wars to be over and uh, had no sympathy for the Japanese and could not separate, you know, know, women and children from the evil Jap, uh, you know, soldiers and leaders. Uh, So, you know, the moral uh, walls come down. Mm -hmm. And um, so, um, you know, and and then, of course, then you get into all the the analysis after the war uh, where people, you know, where the uh, experts and the the military uh, probers and everything else look into it, and they uh, come up with very mixed results. Was this necessary? Did we have to do that? Could the war have ended earlier yeah. uh, or at the same time without killing hundreds of thousands of civilians? So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's of course the whole literature uh, that people should look into if they if they want. Um, but there's you know there's just great debates on whether killing civilians and just, uh, even in the case of Germany, how much did the bombing of cities there? hasten the end of the war. That's right. And, you know, coincidentally, we're talking about the atomic bombing of Japan the day after a gunman in Georgia murdered eight 
Asian Americans. I mean, is it any wonder, Greg, we have a problem with gun massacres in this country when our leaders, political leaders, military leaders have routinely engaged in so much problem solving using similar hardware? I mean, is it any wonder in this country we have a violence issue? Yeah, well, you know, it starts at the top. Uh, And of course, uh, you know, all the police are, you know, look like, they look like more like soldiers than, than soldiers now with yeah. the equipment and everything like that. So um, it's definitely a militarized society and, you know, guns everywhere. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, that's all you have to look at. Uh, the Even the Atlanta killer, what the, you know, like so many others of these uh, killers, you know, young, male, white, uh, seems to have problems with women, you know. Yeah. And uh, when he describes himself what does he highlight about his passions guns uh and so all the almost all these mass killers are gun nuts and uh you know they're not just like gun owners you know they actually are just gun advocates enthusiasts yeah uh and so uh i mean that's a difference you, know, you have gun enthusiast gun enthusiasts versus just your average gun owner mm-hmm. That's a big difference. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what's the lesson that we've learned with uh, nuclear weapons, especially in the earliest days of nuclear weapons? If you've got them, why not try to use a few of them? <laughs> you know, and that, yeah, well, and that is to me with uh, these, uh, these guys stocking up uh, with arsenals of, of firearms and so on. At some point, they're going to go, well, look, I've got this arsenal. I might as well use some of it at some point. Otherwise, what's it doing? It's just collecting well, dust it, here. It is kind of amazing that we haven't gone nuclear yeah. uh, in all the, those, particularly in the, the 50s and 60s, uh, where we had the hardware and we had some incentive. And, yeah. of course, we had Nixon's madman theory, where he wanted the Russians to think we were going to, or the, or the Chinese, to think we might, Nixon was so nuts, he might go <laughs> nuclear at any time. Uh, maybe that's what uh, North Korea was afraid of with Trump, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. They recognized he was he was so nuts, he might use them at any time, so they better... Better write love letters to him. Yeah, but, that, um, that was one of my predictions. Know. One of my predictions about the uh, the Trump administration. I'm glad did not come true. I'm glad I was wrong about this one prediction. I predicted that if Trump had been elected, which he was, I predicted we'd see at least one mushroom cloud somewhere along the line, yeah. whether it was an above ground test or the actual use of a weapon, and that did not happen. I am grateful to have been very wrong on that front. Yeah. <laughs> but well, we came you know, close. We'll see if- <laughs> Yeah, we'll see when more more memoirs or uh, papers get leaked. If there was uh, right. very various uh, days at the White House where they had to talk him down from that, so well, it's uh, uh, wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, let's talk about Mank a little bit here. We've got uh, the Oscar nominations just came out, and back in December, you published a piece about uh, the, you know David Fincher's movie about Herman Mankiewicz. What did Fincher get wrong about the history behind the film? It had to do with Upton Sinclair's run for governor, yes? Yeah, well, you know, I that's another one of my hobby horses. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a, a book, uh, some would still consider my classic book, I guess, on Upton Sinclair's race for governor in 1934. What was that called? Uh, uh, the Campaign of the Century. Right. Which I make, make the case that it was the Campaign of the Century. And, you know, the Wall Street Journal recently called it one of the five greatest books about campaigns ever wow that's great uh, so yeah it, it's uh it's it's quite a quite a thing um and um but you know i mean in a nutshell upton sinclair 
it was a, one of the world's most famous socialists, and of mm. course the muckraker, and wrote the jungle, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he changed his party affiliation from socialist to democrat after FDR won, and ran for governor of California in 1934 and formed a one of the greatest mass movements in the history of the U.S. called End Poverty in California, or EPIC, wow. and um, and amazingly won the Democratic primary in a landslide and was headed for victory as governor uh, when the forces of uh, the special interests and uh, Hollywood and um, uh, all sorts of big big business and conservatives and so forth uh, rallied against him and basically invented the modern political campaign with all the dirty tricks and putting advertising uh, people and uh, political consultants for the first time running a campaign and they ended up defeating him. Um, now in the in Mank, um, they they sort of fabricate in a way that Mank uh, Herman Mankiewicz, a screenwriter, um, becomes appalled by how Hollywood and Irving Thalberg is uh, kind of conspiring to defeat Sinclair. Mm-hmm. And so Mank, um, you know, a lot, a lot of the film is based on his him challenging Thalberg, challenging William Randolph, Randolph Hearst, who was one of the leaders of the opposition. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, probably one quarter of the film is based on, is, is about this. And um, ultimately, the, you know, the, the big plot point in the film is Mankiewicz, against all advice, decides to go ahead and write Citizen Kane for Orson Welles. Uh, which, of course, was uh, a thinly veiled takedown of William Randolph Hearst. Right. So you're supposed to believe that, that Mank uh, was driven to do this uh, mainly because of uh, what happened up poor Upton Sinclair. And as I pointed out in my New York Times article, this is nonsense. Um, and, uh, you know, Mankiewicz showed, at the time showed no particular uh, interest in Upton Sinclair or did anything. And and so forth. So, um, and the piece goes on with other other things in the film related to that that are that are false. Some of it's true. Some of it's very good. Um, and and there are various things that are are false. Yeah, one of the things he said where it wasn't necessarily true, based on what you were just saying, is uh, the film suggests William Randolph Hearst created phony newsreels to smear Sinclair, and that Mank might have written Citizen Kane. <laughs> at least partially as payback, and you're saying that that didn't necessarily happen, that was not necessarily his motivation uh, for writing that film? Yeah, no, it, it, uh, I don't, there's no evidence of that. Uh, Hearst did, also the film shows, suggests that Hearst funded MGM doing this when MGM needed no, no encouragement. Yeah. Uh, and actually these, these newsreels, which were the first attack ads on the screen, uh, the precursor of all the modern um, uh, Commercials we see on TV, uh, uh, you know, hate attack ads on TV, uh, came from this campaign and the use of the newsreel screen uh, to do that. But this came from Irving Thalberg and Louis B. Mayer at MGM, and created these newsreels, some of which were totally false uh, uh, representations, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and and played a key point in the campaign. So that's what I mean. It is interesting. There are interesting. <laughs> parts of the film that that do uh you know uh, are based on reality yeah. but a lot of it is is cockamaming why was uh, so much of hollywood afraid of upton sinclair was it a red scare thing was it a socialism thing is that why yeah i mean he i mean he was a famous socialist and it yeah. was kind of amazing he 
swept the Democratic primary. And, uh, you know, they were, uh, of course, they knew they might suffer uh, financial repercussions. They even, you know, kind of falsely threatened they would move to Florida if he won, mm-hmm. which was another way of getting voters to vote out of fear. Um, they never would have done that, but uh, they did fear what would happen um, in in a more, you know, the, Sinclair was going to run an FDR type uh, government, but he uh, certainly had the socialist taint. And uh, so it was pretty, pretty easy to smear him. Was there any validity to the threat to move film production to all film production to Florida or because it seems to me contrary to the original intent of Hollywood anyway, which is was to get as far away from the copyright owners as possible, which is yeah. why it ended up on the so far down on the West Coast. Um, at least, and that's a very simplistic way of putting the motivation. But it seems like that would have never happened. It seems like that was an easy bluff to call the Florida yeah, gambit. Well, I- I joke in the book that there was a there already there was a town in Florida already called Hollywood. Right, so, right. You know, it would have been easy, but uh, <laughs> no, they wouldn't. They had too much invested out, yeah. out there, and I, I mean, you could say, well, Florida, nice, sunny, you know. But Upton Sinclair would say, like, yeah, they're going to move to Florida with all those mosquitoes and alligators, yeah. and no, no way are they going <laughs> to they're going to going to move down there. So, as a uh, Sinclair uh, scholar, Greg, what did you think of Bill Nye the Science Guy's portrayal of Sinclair in the movie? <laughs> well, yeah, if you blink you'd miss it, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> he did uh, he had the look down. I mean, he yeah. looks looks very much, you know, with gray, you know, making his hair gray, he's very thin. I mean, Sinclair was a very thin guy. He was about the same age as Bill Nye, maybe a little Maybe a little younger now. I'm not sure, but yeah. he didn't have the voice down. But uh, no, I thought that those those few seconds were uh, he, he did a did a good uh, good approximation. Totally took me out of the movie though, because I'm seeing Bill Nye. Right. I'm not see- I'm not seeing Upton but Sinclair. Would, I mean, I I was tipped. I you know they he's not in the credits, yeah. and and, uh, and and to me, I mean, I was following it closely. I didn't see any hardly anything in the press until the movie dropped that right. Bill Nye was even in it. Yeah, and I, I had to wonder. Well, and then then it became known, and I, but I had to wonder if if any more than ten percent who watched it cold would have even recognized him. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't yeah. have known that was him. Well, let's uh, let's switch now to uh, your new Substack newsletter. It is uh, gregmitchell.substack.com. It's an amazing bit of news aggregation, Greg. You've got music news in there, quotes from around the TV dial, tons of politics, like uh, movie news, editorial cartoons. What are some of the specific topics you're covering through this newsletter? What's the overall gist? What's the overall thrust of uh, this publication? <laughs> well, it's it's it, the title is actually. Between rock and a hard place. There you go. Uh, not a rock. So I'm I'm sort of highlighting the rock. And uh, <laughs> as as at least a few people may know, it goes back to my my start in uh, in, in my career. Um, was in uh, was in New York. Uh, I hate to say how many years ago. Uh, <laughs> Fifty years ago this month. Wow. Uh, um, at the legendary music magazine Crawdaddy which I revived um, after it had gone under. Yeah. And then I worked, worked there as an editor uh, for really almost the entire decade. So I do have a, a long background in uh, sort of music. Uh, but then, of course, I've written you know a dozen books, uh, most of them in politics and history and so forth. And um, uh, so I do have this varied background. I've been very involved with films. I've had films uh, optioned, uh, you know, film options for movies and 
uh, now you know, I've directed uh, this film and so forth. So I, I, you know, I, I do kind of have uh, cover the waterfront in a way. Mm-hmm. So the, I suppose the newsletter reflects that, and that there's, uh, uh, but always with humor. So yeah. I mean, there's always a couple, couple sort of funny or pointed. Uh, political cartoons, uh, the, the best of what's come out in the last day or two, and then various items from around uh, various media, media mm-hmm. of all sorts, uh, and then uh, some uh, jokes from uh, you know late night comedians and the Onion and places like that, and then we get to at least three, sometimes four, music videos, or videos from the of. of uh, uh, songs uh, mm-hmm. artists from the pretty much from the past um usually alternate versions or live versions they're not just standard things so um you, you know you get some very uh things people have never seen before that i find yeah and then i get the film latest film trailers you know uh, i might be first to post things you know you know things uh some of the, the best films that have come out in the last few months and now you know just like in, there are films coming up in the next week or two, uh, there's a you know an Aretha Franklin TV series. There's a Tina Turner documentary on HBO. Oh, I can't wait for that. Um, yeah. You know, a new Guy Clark documentary <clears throat> is just just coming out. So I always look. A lot of these are music uh, films that people really have not don't know much about. So yeah. I try to post post the trailer when it comes out and write a little bit about it and so forth. So you know, it, it's this. Uh, and it's sort of exhausting to put this together every day, but mm-hmm. uh, um, but it's um, you know it seems to be be popular. It's hard to judge these things, these new new you know the, you know you've been around long enough to see the various stages that media have go- media have gone through oh, yeah. in the last you know thirty years. Really, you had the, the heyday of the blog. Remember mm-hmm. the heyday? Of, oh well, yes. You, had the, you just had people going online. You know that news outlets going online right in the 90s you know so you had the internet which was an incredible revolution and it was like well you know uh we don't like to go to news sites with everyone's blogging so you mm-hmm. had blogs going to be permanent mm-hmm. and then you know blogs faded and uh, you know now everything was twitter and instagram and so forth and now the latest thing is newsletters that end up in your mailbox it's, i suppose it shows the growing laziness of most <laughs> Uh, readers, yeah, you know, I mean, they used to read things in print. Then they would only read things online. Then they would only read things digested in a blog. And yeah. then they only wanted to read uh, 140 characters on Twitter. And now they want the damn thing delivered in their email box, and they can, you know, just click on it in the morning or whatever. So, but I'm, you know, I've I've been early in all of these trends. So, oh yeah, yeah. You know, I guess I'm giving this a try, and uh, it seems to seems to be going pretty well. Well, you're doing a great job. In fact, I was just going to say this newsletter. If you do a podcast or a radio show or something like that, <laughs> that's right. I've not done a podcast yet. Well, right. but, but you know, what I'm saying is this newsletter is great show prep. If you need something to like yeah. a one stop shop for yeah. things, topics that you can talk about on your podcast or on wh- whoever has a podcast can go to this newsletter and get an array of things to discuss on, yeah. on their show, which Remember is... when people used to do that with Romanesco every day? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, there that used was... to be, uh, back when I was doing radio, there used to be satellite services that would come down, and yeah. uh, I think one was called News Star or something like that, Radio Star, yeah. and you'd get an entire like cheat sheet of topics to discuss on your radio show, just that they would send around to all the different radio stations. So that's a, that's a great resource to have. But it's funny that we're now on to news newsletters delivered into people's email inboxes. And I think going
going back to what you were saying, I think the reason we are where we are, because I'm also publishing on a Substack newsletter, on the Banter uh, newsletter, is... Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, But yours is totally paid, right? You yeah. Pay, yeah, pay it's a subscription. Yeah, mine only, is right? still free, and then a lot of people have a mixed, mixed model. You know, pay yeah. if you can, you know, and... Uh, yeah, but we're not going to uh, force you. Yeah, right. Well, that's kind of the point. I mean, we started with blogs, as you were saying, and then became the rise of, around 2010 or so, became the rise of the the aggregated blogs, where all of the bloggers started to gather together in one place and all blog into sort of one magazine format. And then, and now, because that business model has sort of dried up, where there's no real way to make any money through that, now we've moved on to the newsletter, which is more closely aligned, I think, with the original idea of blogs, which I think is is pretty good. I think we're all just searching for a way to uh, to pick up a little cash for some of the things that we're doing online, and <laughs> this seems to be the latest iteration of it. Right, though, don't, uh, don't count on making a living out of it. <laughs> <laughs> is, is what's what's happened with each of these things. I yeah, think, so. yeah. Well, you you hope that it starts as a hobby and then becomes a, a full time job, and and yeah. uh, that's uh, that seems to be the idea. But it just it's still the wild, wild west when it comes to digital publishing, isn't it? I mean, there is no template for how to to yeah. uh, produce online content and make a little money at the process of doing it. Uh, you know, Facebook... Well, did a- you know, the thing with newsletters is the one, the one good thing is that, you know, people subscribe to it, so they, they're yeah. already asking for it, and then they may stop reading it. Right. But, um, you know, okay, you asked for it, so here it is. You know. <laughs> there you go. I'm, I'm coming at you with my full uh, personality and my quirks and my my uh, prejudices in terms of t- taste in music or in films or whatever. And if, you know, yeah, if you don't like it, but if, you know, if half the people, you know, really love your, your taste and your, uh, where you're coming from politically, then it's, you know, it's kind of cool because they're really locked in. Well, speaking of taste, you have great taste in music. And before we wrap up, why did you choose to co-produce a film about Beethoven's Ninth? I had no <laughs> idea that this was actually a thing. What drew you to that composition? Why did you decide to uh, make a movie about it? Um, well, I, I became obsessed. I, I became, I mean, it's too long of a story, but I, I finally, hmm. after all these decades, after decades of my life, I became a fully a exposed to Beethoven's music and really got obsessed with, with him about, I don't know, 15 years ago. And, um, you know, uh, wrote about him a lot and attended dozens of concerts and everything else. And then I hooked up with a guy who was already working on a film on Beethoven's Ninth, which it, the film is really, I mean, it's called Following the Ninth. And I think if you, if you want to go to YouTube, you can find, I think it's now up there uh, for free, you just can find watch the whole movie oh, on great. YouTube called Following the Ninth, and it's it's a great movie. But what interested me was that it it's not just about it's not like music appreciation. It's about how that the Ninth Symphony has had such a profound political and cultural effect around the world, um, and the, it uses examples of you know Chile after Pinochet and China after Tiananmen Square and uh, helping bring down the Berlin Wall and things like that. So it, it's actually a very political film. But it's um, based around Beethoven's music. So it's the best of both worlds for me. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I can't wait to check that out. That'll be really good. Uh, that's Bill one of Myers my... did a big segment. Yeah, he did a big 
like a 12 minute segment on it. He was so, so blown away. So it was, that was, that was a great thing. Oh yeah. That's a massive endorsement to get Bill Moyers to, uh, you know, praise your film. That's a, an incredible yeah, well, he thing. Showed, showed like he talked about it for like three minutes and then showed nine minute clip from it. So it was, it was quite extraordinary. Oh, Hey, congratulations. That's really great. I, this is going to be my first stop after I post this show. I'm going well, to look I, at I, the Moyers isn't on the air anymore. So I'd, I well, wish that could happen with my new film. Well, no, yeah, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch. If anyone's out there listening and wants to, uh, you know, wants to interview me or, or uh, show a clip from the film, I'll. I'll be all for it. There you go. There you go. Well, Greg Mitchell's film is called Atomic Cover-Up. It'll have its American premiere at the Cinequest Film Festival March 20th through the 30th. That's going to be online. Uh, The newsletter is gregmitchell.substack.com. I've got links in the description at bobseska.com for everything we talked about today, including the film (laughs) festival, including the newsletter, including the New York Times piece about Mank. Thank you so much, Greg, for returning to the show. You're now part of the official two-timers club. So congratulations, wear it well. (laughs) Well, Thank you, Bob. I always appreciate coming on. Thank you. Thanks so much, Greg. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hold it. Don't nobody move. If you're sick and tired of the commercials on the show, I've got a solution for you. For just $15 per month, you can get the ultimate edition of this podcast. Here's what that means. The ultimate edition combines the free version of the show with the post-mortem show that we record after the end credits. Plus, we take out all the commercials just for you. That means you get the hour-long free show plus the 20-minute post-mortem show where all the real fun happens, and you get all of that without commercials for just $15 per month. That's bobseskashow.com or just click the all caps Patreon link beneath the logo at bobseska.com. Thank you.